0: Hey there, Intrepid Bike Shed listener. We've been nominated for the Best Dev Podcast in the first annual Hacker Noon Noonies Award. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could cast a vote for us to let the world know you care. We've made a nice short URL for you to follow so you can find the voting page at tbot.io slash Noonies. That's t-b-o-t dot i-o slash Noonies, N-O-O-N-I-E-S. And we'll include a link in the show notes. Thanks. Can you hear me? Yes. I can hear you, but I don't think you can hear that I can hear you.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm gonna try something real quick because I'm not getting you. Let me um, reboot this interface real quick.
0: I don't know if he scrolled down far enough to see my typing. I don't
1: mm-hmm. know how to give him that information. <laughs> here we are. Here we are. I, I can hear you now. I think it was my uh, my ad blocker. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is perfect. <laughs>
1: Uh, is that what you were talking about when I couldn't hear you?
0: Uh, no. I mean, it's normal to have connection difficulties. The fact that it ended up being your ad blocker is perhaps one of my favorite things, and I think it's an <laughs> ideal note upon which to start the show. uh. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris Toomey, one of the developers here at ThoughtBot, and I'm joined today by Michael Chan, known as Chantastic throughout the internets. You are the host of the React podcast. You are the author of the fantastic React Patterns website. You are a prolific tweeter, blogger, podcaster, YouTuber, and maker and sharer of things. And I am just so happy to have you joining me today. Thank you so
1: much, Michael. It is my pleasure. I am so glad to finally meet you. And with that list, it actually sounds like I've done anything with my life at all, which is amazing. I feel good right now. It's
0: It really is that like in any given minute or week you can look at it and you're like, I, I didn't do anything. I haven't
1: accomplished anything.
0: And then you add it up every once in a while and you're like, you know what? it's like I well, haven't I done nothing.
1: I haven't done nothing that you can carve that on my tombstone,
0: I think. (laughs) Now, as someone who has uh, followed you for, I would say, many years on the Internet, you are, like I said, a prolific maker of things and share, I think, is probably the most pertinent word. You are uh, incredibly giving and open with the things that you're learning and what you're experiencing and what you're picking up and trying out and experimenting with. And I think that's so valuable. And frankly, as someone who doesn't do it as much, uh, I want to thank you for that effort that you put out
1: there. Oh, well, thank you. Now, I feel like that's not super true, though, because I feel like you have always been part of my inspiration for putting things out there. I've been following ThoughtBot for like a super long time. And is it right if I kind of like share a little bit of backstory between our like intertangling? Absolutely. Okay. So I was doing a lot of work in the front end space and then kind of make a long story short, I got a job doing Ruby stuff. And it was right around the time that ThoughtBot was creating course material Which eventually became Upcase and you eventually took over and made amazingly beautiful with incredible notes and all those kind of things. And it was like really during that time that like Thoughtbot was guiding the way that I thought about code, the way that I thought about learning, the way that I thought about like presenting material and trying to make things super easy. So I'm not going to let you off the hook too <laughs> easy trying to diminish the, the work that you've uh, contributed to the internet because it, is, it has been great. Well, thank you. I appreciate
0: that. I think that the same sort of lens that you were describing earlier of when you look at it in the moment, you don't, you don't see much of the pieces. When you add it up, I, yes. I can see I've made a few videos. It's true. <laughs> but I focus so much more on the things that I haven't made and that I haven't shared. And yes. I personally suffer from uh, over-editing and overthinking. Like I'm a terrible blogger because there's no... Timeliness to a blog. I can keep editing and keep refining and as a result. Yes. I have almost no blog posts on the Thoughtbot blog, which is rare for a ThoughtBotter. But it turns out that <laughs> Upcase and the podcast that I've been on have just forced me to ship once a week. And oh my God, yes. has that been useful for me actually getting anything out there into the world?
1: Yeah, there's nothing more valuable than just putting it on the calendar and like having some accountability to someone. And you know, maybe that's maybe that's Tom. You know, because he's going to make you do it no matter what, right? But he sure is. <laughs> having it on the calendar and being like, you know what? Crap or not, like it's going out on you know Wednesday at 1 p.m. is such a valuable thing to master in your life. To say, you know, and maybe it's nobody but yourself. But giving yourself those deadlines and being like, you know what? The people who did great work, it wasn't because they didn't do work and then had a masterpiece at the end of it. It's because they just kept publishing and then eventually something great came out.
0: I 100% agree, and yet still, when I look at folks that are prolific and successful makers, I'm just like, oh, no, no, no. They just get it right the first time. (laughs) That's still the image that I have in my head of everyone that's out there doing great work and actually this, I think, segues perfectly into one of the first topics I wanted to talk to you about, which is a theme and particularly a conference talk that you gave somewhat recently, which is called Hot Garbage, the Death <laughs> of Clean Code. So it's got a beautiful name to start Thank with. You. Thank you. But I think tied up in that talk are a lot of these sort of themes. And I've heard you mention the war of art and things related to that and just kind of grinding it through and getting the work done from time to time. And I love that as a framework, a way of thinking, a contrast to some of the other points of view that I, actually hold very dear. The ideas of craftsmanship and clean code and all of those things are amazing and yet can be counterproductive. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that whole story and the themes that you're trying to push yeah, there? Yeah,
1: totally. So one of the subtle trolls of that talk is, is that nothing that I say is actually against solid design principles. It's more attacking the behavior of, you know, like you said, like not shipping, like thinking too much and deliberating too much on like some ideal that isn't serving you or your customers, or your business, just kind of like holding this ideal in your head that is really counterproductive. And the title is admittedly a little bit like clickbaity or hate bait or whatever you want to call it. But the idea is really just to like get out of your own way. And particularly as developers, we have a tendency to fixate on whatever the latest trend is, whatever the latest library is, all of these kind of things. And we forget sometimes that like our role is really no matter how deep into code we are, we're serving the customer. We're trying to generate business. Like we're all part of this thing that is doing a job. And sometimes we forget that and we, you know, fixate on code when really we'd already passed the point where it was good enough. We exhausted all of the things that we knew. We made the best solution for the time being. And, you know, things end up having to get rewritten. And if we think too much about you know, the future, we kind of just like run ourselves into circles and like keep rewriting the same code before it's even seen the light of day. I, I really love all of the mentors who've come before, like Sandy Metz in particular, really just bringing us back up into this idea of, you know, what are the business goals? What are the things that make money? And have we exhausted what we know about this problem? And if we have, then just ship it, know that we're going to learn more, you know, after shipping it, and if we have to rewrite it, we have to rewrite it. You know, there's no magic crystal ball that's going to be able to tell us that we chose the right future anyway. And I really love that. There's a there's a serenity that comes with being able to just kind of let go, put something out into the world and be like, you know what, we didn't know enough. Now we do, now we're going to make it as best we can right now, and move on with our lives.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think the aspect that resonates with me, especially strongly with that, is we will never know enough, or yeah. <laughs> we will never have perfect information, or we may have perfect information about right now, but it's going to change by definition. Yes, uh, and I think one of the themes that you introduce is the idea that rather than thinking of ourselves as architects or builders or, or any of these other things, we're farmers. We're yeah. tending the code, we're maintaining it, we're harvesting it from time to time, but that it's this growing, evolving, almost organic thing, which is an
1: interesting counterpoint to some of the ways that I've thought about code in the past, and I really liked that. Yeah, I think it's really fun when you think about code as, or particularly applications, right? A lot of times, you know this, you know, being in a consultancy where you're coming alongside a team, but then also even if you are just joining a team as an employee, we don't actually stay in an application for the life of that application so it's kind of hilarious that we try so hard to impart ourselves on this thing that has come before us and will outlast us in a sense or at least our efforts on it and so there's an element of respect that we need to pay to these applications that they they have knowledge that we don't have and you know we get to kind of like just kind of come alongside them for a little bit you know do our part kind of tend to it to kind of keep it alive and keep it growing And, uh, you know, we might move on and it has a life totally separate from us, you know, as we go on, which is just kind of weird to think about.
0: Yep, it's especially true. I mean, I'm coming into and out of organizations and code bases and teams constantly. And so this has sort of been forced into me by the nature of that work. But I think... Like you're saying, that's more and more common these days. That's sort of the mode that we all are working in to some degree. Yeah, And so being honest about that and accepting it, I think, is very useful and a nice way to frame
1: things. Well, that's something I really loved about the work that that ThoughtBot puts out is that you're able to kind of run these experiments and to say... Hey, like we have this uh this idea about like kind of the maintainability of code long term if we do it this way, and so we're gonna you know kind of run this experiment and and see how it goes. Then you kind of report on that and say, yeah, like these things actually did work out. But then also these were there were some side effects that were a little bit weird. We didn't know to expect them, and so we'll kind of like adjust our plan on the next one. And I love that about the kind of consulting world because you get to. Run these experiments a little bit faster, I think, than you know product teams. You know, it's a little bit more of a slow-moving ship. It is, yeah. It, although my theme has
0: often been that ThoughtPot and our consulting point of view is not that different, or mm-hmm. if anything, those differences are perhaps aspects that we can bring back into product teams. Like the idea that you're going to be on a team for forever is not true. (laughs) The length of time that you will be on it is variable, but the idea that any one person should have the entirety of knowledge about a system within a code base, I think is deeply dangerous because who knows, any number of things can happen from the very mundane to the very extraordinary that will make that person not be around anymore. And we are that, but sort of on purpose. Uh, And I think it, it helps highlight things, but I think it's true of everyone... I think the other side of it, and this is another theme that you sort of introduce through the talk, is it's okay to be uncertain and there are no universal rules, which the further I get into my career, the more I feel both of those are
1: true. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I think that we've seen that over the course of particularly the last five years in the front end space. Even longer than that, I think that we've seen these huge trends in CSS in particular, it has not moved as fast as JavaScript. And we've not been able to get a lot of the language constructs that we have in JavaScript, that have made JavaScript a really great language to work with and have given us methods of properly encapsulating code. And so there's been all of these trends of like, how do we kind of like limit the effects of the cascade and how do we make code maintainable, but still make it semantic. And there's been all of these questions and all of these techniques rolling around over the past, you know, maybe seven years. And all of them kind of like fly in the face of like what the absolute best practices were before. And a lot of that is just the changing nature of the web, right? When you have some type of like news site yeah, it made sense that you would kind of like divide things up by their sections and, you know, just kind of cascade things in those sections. But then as soon as you have an application, all of that just flies out the window and when it becomes like deeply interactive application, as we've seen over the last like five years, then you need new techniques and new approaches and all of these things that were like hard, immutable rules by, you know, the gods of CSS a decade ago, um, just kind of go out the window because it's like they, they don't make sense now. They They made sense back then. They don't make sense now. And so there's this really kind of like rapid changing of the guard, I think, in some of those spaces. I think you have to trust that like new problems require new solutions and you're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater to like kind of start over. Sometimes you have to, sometimes, you know, if what was there before isn't, isn't serving you, you got to just like rethink it. And I don't think there's any shame in it. I have loved following all of the, you know, CSS and JS trends and, you know, there's been some missteps, but there's been some really cool innovations that have come out of it as well. And um, that's all super exciting. I think it's it's
0: hard to evolve at the pace that these techniques and these the sort of applications that we're building and, and basically everything in that space is moving and not have a few missteps. Yeah, But I think the point that you were making earlier about ThoughtBot and the fact that we're somewhat public about it, we value transparency so highly, and I think it allows us to be more honest in the sort of things that we're doing in the cases where we have missed the ball or not executed perfectly or or things like that. But I think those stories are so deeply valuable that I love working in an organization that allows us to really tell the true stories when they're even when there are rough parts in them.
1: Yeah, there was a tweet by Zach Holman, and um, he used to work at, at GitHub. He was saying that he wishes that there was some kind of law about the Internet that anytime someone wrote a piece about some new solution that they had that six months later they had to come back and talk about how it was total garbage and they 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 totally messed it up and i think that that's true like we love the sales pitch we love telling people that we've solved all of their problems but then we are so reticent to go back and be like actually there were some side effects that we didn't anticipate and they were unfortunate and we're trying these new things and i do love that about like thoughtbot that Talking about like it wasn't a silver bullet like you didn't find a a magic wonderland at the end of it You just found you know some better but different problems It's a constantly evolving space.
0: And so I think part of it is trying to untangle our identity from the code we write. I think at the core, the way I think of Thoughtbot is we are an organization that is searching for the best ways to work. And we're always trying to find new ones. We believe that that's a moving target and not something that's fixed. So the idea that we would just have one answer to any of these things doesn't really hold. And thus, I think it's easier for us based on that as sort of principle zero from there, it's very easy to have the conversations about like, yeah, you know what, that worked for a while, but it doesn't work anymore. We use Backbone for a long time. We wrote books about Backbone. We certainly don't write Backbone applications
1: anymore. Yeah, I think that a lot of us in, our, in the early stages of our career, we want to find the silver bullet. We want to be able to find those things that we can say like, I am doing this now and forever and it's going to make me super efficient. And the more developed, the more seasoned do we get into our careers, we realize that in a lot of ways, like every application, every problem is in some ways a special snowflake, and you can bring what you've learned, you can bring your patterns, and you can bring your history, but you really have to have reverence for each problem and and not try to beat it over the head with with old hammers.
0: Yeah, I, I do think that's a double edged sword where we can end up then reinventing the wheel, and so yeah, I appreciate so much. The conversation that you're having the things that you're saying it, through the talks and through just sort of your online persona because i think it's such a solid counterbalance to the certainty and one of the things that you highlight is like ESLint rules and just the wall of those that are yelling at you <laughs> for any slight misstep as if there's one clear correct way to write react code and anything else is obviously wrong and so we must yell about that in our editors and I have felt that pain. I go between different ESLint Lint and RuboCop and all of the different linters. And I just, each place is like, oh, so, okay, that's your rule set. Got it. Okay, we can work with that. I will change my practices. And it is interesting to see the, the differences between different camps and how strongly people will hold to them. I used to definitely be one of those people as well who would hold much more strongly to my beliefs about linting rules. And I've slowly just
1: like, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that much. <laughs> right, it doesn't matter. You know, it's funny. I've been, over the last year, I think actually, honestly, it was inspired by that talk the hot garbage clean code is dead, it was a moment for me when I was kind of transitioning from an opinion of certainty, like that I wanted to know everything, that I wanted to have the answer, that I wanted to kind of front and be able to say like, I have the answers, right? And so there's this big shift that happened in me where I realized like, you know, maybe I don't and maybe I am limiting my ability to learn by thinking that I do. And over the last year, I've been Kind of having this question bounce around in my head, which is what if none of it matters? What if the only thing that matters is communication? You know, can a team that communicates really well, but is a little bit naive, get as far as quickly as a team who has a bunch of experts that can't agree and they argue about pedantic nonsense? And so far, I really think that that shift. You know, it it hasn't been maybe as like mentally stimulating and and satisfying as kind of like churning through a book on some like advanced programming practices, but really investing in communication and trying to listen to people and, you know, not force my opinions on them, uh, you know, kind of invest in communication and not like command things over people has been so enlightening and just really giving people a space to be heard, even if you don't end up going with their solutions or, or whatnot. Fostering like strong communication, it has felt like a superpower over the last year.
0: I love the the way you describe that of going through the process of writing the talk and giving the talk was almost inspired new thinking within yourself. Or you sort of discovered it along the way. Those are by far the best talks when you when you figure out a truth that you had in there. You just had to piece together the parts. That's a lot of fun, but. I do think there's something inherent to the nature of the work that we do where we're sort of just getting into pedantic arguments with computers all day. (laughs) And then the actual thing that I think matters is communicating effectively with human in subtler nuanced terms. And there's sort of an incongruous middle there that I think that is the hard work is trying to bridge that. But it is interesting that like a lot of the focus is on yelling at the computer when in fact it should be on talking with humans. Uh, And it even like goes back to the agile manifesto of let's just bring all of the conversations more to the forefront. Let's highlight actual working software over comprehensive documentation and things like that. The fixed, hard, less human bits, let's de-emphasize those and let's focus more on communicating and iteration and actually talking to
1: users. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I imagine that that has to be, be true at ThoughtBot where you kind of have a lot of people coming in, but it seems like even as an industry right now, we have a lot of people coming into our industry right now and I, it does feel at times like there's a little bit of a war between you know the old school 10x mindset developer who like locks himself in a cave and then produces the code and that's all they do i i don't even know if they do anything else they just they live in their cave and they produce code to kind of more of a a group mindset, which is honestly like even like broader cultural, like this idea of like just shared hive mind, learn in the open, you know, all that kind of stuff. We have this whole new glut of talent that kind of has a totally different, more communal way of programming and thinking about things. And it feels like we haven't really married those two yet. They're not really working together. And there's a little bit of a war. And um, I think that's something that I'm really starting to feel passionate about is, like, how can we get everybody on the same page? We don't have to bring everyone fully to the middle, but figuring out a space where people can comfortably communicate, even if if that's in, you know, small chunks, but really, like, bringing that up as a high priority of software development, I think is going to be something that's that's really important over the next, you know, decade of software development.
0: Yep. I wholeheartedly agree with every aspect of that. And... I myself have never run into a true 10X developer, so I'm still on the search for one of those. But Totally.
1: I, I say it with uh, little uh, air quotes uh, yeah. over here.
0: <laughs> I've seen folks who manifest some of the, the characteristics that are often associated, but that lack of communication, I guess I am somewhat biased in that I'm often working on application code. I'm working at things that are pretty close to quote-unquote users, and I think Thoughtbot broadly does this. We optimize and we focus on that. There's probably a low-level algorithmic space where it really is beneficial to just be that person that can grind and grind and knows algorithmic complexity and things like that that I'll be honest I, I totally don't but I don't want to do that work for one. And I see <laughs> immense value in the other end. Like we just need so much software right now. Yeah. And I think the best way to produce it is by having humans communicate and then write some stuff into the computer. But that's the last step. That's the boring step at the end of the process. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's fun. I've got Vim.
1: I like Vim. I like to type things into it, but. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. There's nothing more fun than being in the zone and just knocking it out. I, I mean, I do not fault anyone who wants to live in that space as much as possible because it's it's fun.
0: I've never been able to stay in that space for forever though. Like I agree, I, I love that. That experience of just the code is kind of coming out of my hands as fast as I can type it and time sort of blends away. But it's rare that I have a problem that I can just keep working on and keep doing that For forever without needing to come back up for air without needing to circle back to some quote-unquote user someone who represents the needs of the like sometimes i'm my own consumer for software that i'm writing but rarely these days and so it almost always i have to come back
1: up i have to pop out of that bubble and check in with other humans that's interesting yeah i I would totally agree with that it feels like there's like a half-life to how long that high lasts and then you really do have to come up and be like okay like what's happening in the real world real world out here (laughs) What was I doing? I kind of blacked out there for a few hours. Uh, Wrote a lot of code, but uh, here I am. Well, I'd love to
0: shift gears a little bit or actually circle back to a topic that you hinted at that uh, I'm increasingly intrigued by, which is the world of CSS and JS. This seems to be one of the more fraught fronts of the many changes that are going on, or maybe that's just my take on it. But where have you currently landed? What do you think about that space? You know,
1: it's really interesting. (laughs) I have mixed opinions about it because it's something that I was really excited about right when React came out one of the first things that I did with react was to just shove CSS in the style attribute. And I thought it was amazing because it was like co-located in the component. And I was like, this is brilliant. Like we should all write code like this. And obviously that's not a great strategy because it's, you know, it's slow for, you know, for big apps or whatever. And a lot of the work that's happened in CSS and JS over the past, what, four years, I guess, Has been in making that more performant and kind of handling a lot of that at your your build step And I think that that work has been really interesting. I think that was it styled components and emotion have really pushed the boundaries of What is reasonable and like how fast I mean some of the stuff is insanely fast now And I think that you just have to take a pragmatic approach to all this stuff I think that if you're writing a react application, you know, it's going to be react for the foreseeable future and you want to invest in tooling that's effectively React-specific, it's great. Nothing's going to help you go faster in writing and most particularly like removing styles that are no longer needed. That's probably the weakest point of CSS. I mean, there's jokes all over the internet about how you never delete CSS. And I think that one of the strongest points of CSS and JS is is that it's encapsulated. You've been able to kind of co-locate it into JavaScript, which has all of the tools you need to encapsulate that know where it's being used, and delete it when it's no longer necessary. And I think that's an amazing value. The problem is is that really most of this innovation has been happening inside of the React ecosystem. So a lot of these things aren't necessarily shared with other platforms. So one of my jobs is that I build a component library for our suite of applications. And um, we made the decision to just do CSS. And the reason is because we have a stack that that is not static. So we have Rails apps, we have Phoenix apps, we have React apps... And something that transcends all of those is a standard like CSS. So we have decided to go the route of you know using CSS for that, um, just because any one of those applications doesn't need to be you know treated in a specific way. It's not forced into making architectural or technology decisions because of you know the way that the style guide is. And um, I think that that's really important for our type of applications. But again, I think that there's a, a big continuum and you know, you might fall anywhere on it that puts, you know, all your CSS in JS or just has you, you know, really playing against standards. But, you know, CSS has come a long way and there's some amazing tools. I mean, CSS custom properties I think are better than anything that exists for theming in the CSS and JS space. I'm probably gonna get some hate for that, but I believe it. Is that where you're attaching
0: attributes to DOM nodes, and then you're using the attribute value, or am I just mixing concerns entirely
1: there? Oh, yeah. So CSS custom properties is basically just like SAS variables, but like baked into CSS.
0: Okay, is it CSS variables? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Frankly, the fact that that's built into the platform now is a wonderful thing, and I haven't looked at the browser adoption, but I assume it's good enough because at this point we're getting into almost the dreamland of all evergreen
1: browsers, depending yes. on your who your target audience is but yeah (laughs) totally we are discontinuing support for ie 11 this august So we're right on that cusp. And then, you know, all this stuff right there. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's amazing. But we've kind of worked around that, too, in that for our entire suite, we just have a standard fallback set of colors. So you're really not in a bad position. Uh, Your your experience is just slightly degraded. You don't have some of those like app specific tints that you would get if you have the access to CSS custom properties.
0: I've never heard of progressive enhancement in CSS, but here we are. (laughs) I know, right? It's amazing. It's a wonderland. What a time to be alive. (laughs) I guess my experience has been similar, where when I first heard about CSS and JS, I thought, nope, absolutely not, against best practices, not going to do it, no way. (laughs) Christopher Chadeau, I believe, has a sort of canonical talk on it, highlighting a lot of the issues with CSS. Mm -hmm. And then I started to explore it. I played around with styled components and emotion. And I particularly, I think, run into the same thing that you're highlighting, where for component pattern libraries within an organization, it's actually a difficult way to distribute that. But it sounds like you're doing the thing that I'm starting to think about, which is having a common pattern library or style library within your organization, but then at the React level, wrapping that in components and that being the exposed point into the React applications. Is that what you're doing or is it pure CSS and class names throughout the the target react apps
1: yeah so right now the main export of the library is the css so you're going to have you know a single class for select and then some some modifiers and whatnot and we use the bem style for that all of them are individually importable so we use lerna to kind of separate all of the the modules out or you can do like a big bootstrap style import where you just import the entire library And then we have components that wrap those. And so effectively, the components are are very transparent, but they will have like a class name attached to them that links to that CSS class name. The beauty of this approach is that we can, you know, have abstractions on the Rails side, right? So we can augment some of our helpers so that, you know, if you want to, you know, use any of the fantastic select helpers that you get from Rails and that you can just kind of, you know, use these styles and have the same benefit there without having to be too entangled with the the React stuff. It's like you're saying, we're just kind of have some components that wrap those specific classes now the nice thing is that some of the markup for some elements is not direct like a lot of times like an avatar like our avatar it's an image wrapped in a span and the span actually does all of the the overflow hidden and a lot of the styling stuff it's a pretty common pattern for avatars and so one thing that's really nice about the react stuff is, is that all that markup and the additional classes that are needed are baked into that so you, the component is really the easiest way to to implement that because you don't have to specifically copy and paste or or, or make sure that you put all of the markup in the right places so that it's uh, that component renders the right way right that totally makes sense to me and the idea that react components
0: now seem like such a simple idea but they were they were quite the thing when they came out and the idea of this, we can encapsulate a bunch of things, we can introduce these abstractions, a card can now be first class thing that you can work with directly. And you get everything that comes along with that, like what you're describing, including the styles. I find that increasingly intriguing, the idea of a team just being able to pick up those pieces and connect them together and wire the data through. And then we have this dynamic application that still holds true to all the brand guidelines and colors and everything like that. That seems like the dream and the most flexible, reasonable option, especially if you have to target other, and if you're on a Rails or other other different rendering targets, uh, that all definitely makes sense. Yeah,
1: I totally agree. And honestly, I am really excited about kind of investing even more in standards. So I know that there's a lot of work happening with uh, web components, and they're supported in, I think, most if not all of the evergreen browsers. Unfortunately, React has like the worst support for web components. And we can get in or not get into that. But I would really love a future where we could have web components doing that work of providing the right markup and providing that that really clean abstraction for us and then be able to just use React for the more, you know, tying it together, the logic and the state and all that kind of stuff. Dare to dream. Dare to dream. There's, it's always right around the corner, isn't it? It's like there's, there's something on the horizon in standards land that's gonna save us and just always right on the edge. I mean,
0: partly I agree with that, but partly I was just noticing the other day, I think it was the optional chaining proposal that uh, finally made it through TC39 and now will be implemented in TypeScript and all the other places. And I was just like, wow, man, things are really moving fast. And CSS Grid just came out of nowhere. Where? I, how did yes. that happen? And I look at all of these different things. I'm like, I feel like we're actually kind of cranking along. And the platform is really, there's still plenty that that I would want. And I think many highlight and would want. But I'm personally very happy with the pace of things and what feels like a stable, purposeful, but very much progressing forward sort of uh, world that we're living in now, especially as compared to, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, a totally different world.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially in JavaScript land, being able to see these proposals, like it feels now like they're even coming out a little bit fast for me. Like I I can't quite keep up, which is what I, I feel like I always wanted. But now I'm kind of like questioning that. Yeah, there's some
0: adage about, like, may you get what you wish for or something, (laughs) because it's the worst thing that could possibly happen. But, (laughs) right. well, I would love to shift gears one more time. As we highlighted at the beginning, you are the host of the React podcast. And as a result, you've gotten to talk to many of the folks sort of at the forefront of that world and all of the great work that's going on in the React ecosystem. I'm sort of intrigued as to where you want to take it with that. But my question to you is, what has caught your eye or what are the themes that you're seeing as you have? each of these conversations with some of the folks in that forefront
1: yeah that's a great question react podcast has been a really interesting experiment for me and i really have enjoyed being forced to have conversations with people that i have long been afraid of or nervous to approach and that has been amazing for me and it really does come down to what we were talking about at the beginning which is just set a weekly schedule and then force yourself in a position where you have to do something that you're not excited to do or you don't feel qualified to do. It's been amazing. I've been able to talk to so many great people and it's just been fun. I mean, we did this one with, uh, I just released it with uh, Paul Henschel talking about React Spring. And I was nervous like crazy because I am not animation at all. It's just not part of my, my world. And uh, I just, I thought I was going to look like an idiot. And uh, we started talking and he just said some of the most beautiful things about uh, about animation and beauty and how we perceive beauty. And it was so fulfilling for me to be able to just sit there and, and listen to him talk. And uh, I have loved every conversation that I've been able to have on that show. As far as trends go, I think that there's a lot happening in the open source space. And I think that there's a lot being discovered about how we maintain open source, how we support open source, how we communicate about open source. I think there's a lot going on there, and I'm just excited to, to see it work out. I think one thing that's been particularly interesting is hearing library authors talk about their challenges in supporting multiple platforms. And that's particularly important for react because you know by default you have react and then people want the same library for react native you know style components has had to go through this a bunch of libraries have had to go through this challenge of how do we support the same api how do we grow the library to support different targets And um, that's a really interesting challenge. And there's a lot of things that just aren't obvious about the problem. And I've seen a lot of people turn to mono repos. Um, I know that like, you know, React and Babel and a lot of big projects have already moved to that type of architecture where you have one GitHub repository with a lot of packages. And that has been a really interesting experiment. I think also with, you know, how you package that up for NPM is interesting and I know that there's a lot of things happening in GitHub right now. Uh, so GitHub has GitHub Actions, which are really cool in terms of packaging up, testing, doing anything that you would do in in a build or CI. You can do a lot of cool stuff with that now. They have the new GitHub Package Registry, which is in beta, and there's like so many cool things happening in this space of like how we package up code and and deliver it to the world. That's going to be, I think, a common knowledge type of thing for developers moving forward is how do you share your packages and you know thinking about whether or not it's a you know something small that is already universal by virtue of being javascript or if it's something that is going to need to have kind of these adapters to different platforms and like how you architect your repos and all that kind of stuff i think that is something that has come up over and over again as i talk to some of these open source maintainers and every one of them just has a a really interesting take on the challenges there particularly the social challenges of once you support multiple platforms, now your thing is in a one NPM install, it's going to be two by default, you're going to have to install the core library and then whichever platform you're targeting. And just that one little change could be really challenging to communicate to users. So I'm really interested to see kind of like where we land on this, there's so much happening in open source, and it's really becoming a very common requirement or skill set to have. And I, I love that. I sort of
0: love that I cornered you in with a question there and then you ended up talking about a much more meta and I think deeper and more sort of (laughs) category-breaking concept just generally around open source and maintainability and how do we share code, which I think is a great answer to what do you think is happening in React? Because at the end of the day, (laughs) React is, I think, a community that has done incredibly well to not be insular and to not be locked Mm -hmm. off and to be sharing and borrowing and collaborating. And I see such positive interactions between the core team members and the core teams of other frameworks and supporting framework authors and library authors. And so I think it was a perfectly representative answer of the world
1: of React. Yeah, you know, it's really hard to separate a lot of the movement that's happening in open source from React, which is really interesting. But really, React is driving so much of the way we think about development. But then also, it has all these side effects that are really interesting. Like, you know, like we said, how do you organize your projects? How do you you know publish stuff to npm and in the React community specifically seems very eager to share their uh, solutions on npm and uh yeah, it just React touches so many things and it's such a fun technology for that reason, and I've really loved it as a lens into open source, what's happening in development, what's happening in ui design systems all that kind of stuff it really does seem interconnected with all of it and it's super fun That absolutely all sounds
0: true to me. And that that intersection space that React plays, as much as it's a great framework and a very productive way to do things, I'm almost more interested in the way the project and the ecosystem around React has been evolving. And I will continue to follow all of your work because you seem to have your finger on the pulse of that. So with that, I think we should probably wrap up. Michael, thank you once again so much for joining us.
1: Oh, it has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on this show that I have loved listening to for many years. Absolutely. And where could folks uh, best keep up with you on the internet if they were interested in doing that? Yeah. So I'm a uh, chantastic on Twitter, react podcast, obviously reactpodcast.com and react podcast on Twitter. And then, yeah, I've actually been writing a lot. So I've been doing that on uh dev too. And I've started blogging kind of bizarrely enough at chan.dev slash blog. So the site is pretty bare bones right now, but there's a little bit of my writing up there.
0: Well, as I said at the beginning, you are a prolific maker, so we will include links to uh, everything you just listed and all the best ways to find you in the show notes. Again, thank you so much. Thank you. Show notes for this episode can be found at Bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach out to us at at underscore Bikeshed, or you can reach me at at Chris Toomey, or host at shed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.